Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Jesus said, Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Please be seated. Well, today's a wonderful gift in many ways, and if you're visiting, it's a blessing to have you here, but it's not going to be a normal service, uh, because we, number one, have a wonderful guest preacher, and I'll tell you about in a minute, but one of the reasons that we invited George to come today is because of his experience that he's going to share in the context of his sermon. And it's building towards a couple of things. Uh, First of all, on Sunday, March 1st, and you'll see these flyers down at the brunch which most of you will go to, by the way. Uh, it's a wonderful brunch. The Hog Heaven guys made it. The 8 o'clockers shared in it. There's a couple of different choices. You'll really enjoy it if you go, trust me. Uh, but we're doing a brunch following the service. You'll have a chance to meet George a little more as well. But on Sunday, March 1st, we're going to have two showings down at the Caligny Theater at 2 p.m. and 5 p.m. of the movie Emmanuel. And it's in part what George is going to be talking about this morning. Uh, But it's only an hour and 15 minute movie. And we have the theater. Uh, It's going to be donation. And uh, the Richardsons have basically donated the theater. So it's a blessing for us to be able to share in that time. So you'll be hearing more about this in the coming weeks. But something that you'll really want to get on your calendar is March 21st, uh, we're going to have a conference from 9 in the morning till uh, 4 in the afternoon, plus or minus on both of those, uh, Pastor Anthony Thompson, whose wife was killed at Mother Emanuel Church, uh, he is going to be one of our speakers, and our Bishop Mark Lawrence is going to be the other one, and it's going to be a fabulous day. So you want to get those on your calendar. George Graves, who I was introduced to through John Wigington, who's a wonderful leader and servant in this parish, Uh, They've become friends, and George was the FBI agent, without stealing his thunder, who accompanied Ruth, and and you will see that. And uh, he's just such a wonderful, sweet man. I've had an opportunity to spend some time with him this week, and uh, he's now a friend and a blessing in my life. And uh, he's got a story to tell, and he's got a message to bring. And we are blessed to have George here this morning, and I'd like to pray for us and for George as he prepares to come up here. Lord God, we thank you that you've gathered us today, this special day, in many ways, for the opportunity to hear George, to see a little video clip about Emmanuel, and Lord, to share in this time together of hearing George bring your message to us, your message of forgiveness. Lord, open our hearts to you, open our hearts to George, 
Open our hearts to one another as we share fellowship. And now, Lord, as we observe this video, prepare our hearts for the message George will bring. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Emmanuel video. When he spoke to me, I was on the floor looking up at him from under the table. He just stopped and he said, "Um, did I shoot you yet? And I said, no. And he said, I'm not going to. I'm going to leave you here to tell a story. Seven feet. I'm outside the Emmanuel AME Church. We do know that several people have been shot. Barren, strange fruit. When we close our eye to pray, that when he lit up the room. Blood on the leaves. Bear with me, okay? How many shots has he fired? He's reloading. He's reloading. And blood at the roots. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. Racism is as American as apple pie. And that's why I don't understand why so many people are shocked. You had the nerve to get on TV and say this is the holy sin. What's holy about from the poplar trees. I've seen other cities explode under the weight of a single murder. Of the gallant south. Now we have nine dead bodies in a church. There's going to be a response. Oh, but God works in mysterious ways. Strange fruit hanging. Some people see the family's forgiveness as submission, but that act of forgiving people is the greatest act of love that one could ever experience. Good morning. So good to be here this morning with you, St. Luke's. Thank you for your um, warm reception. Um, You know, when you spend your entire career as an FBI agent chasing bad guys, I typically don't get invited to a whole lot of places. (laughs) Not unless, of course, um, and I typically don't get this kind of a turnout unless, of course, I've I've had a subpoena all of you to attend to court. (laughs) But thank you for being here this morning. Um, I want to especially thank your pastor, Pastor Greg Krantz, who um, I've got the pleasure of getting to meet this week. As he mentioned, we spent some time this week getting to know one another, and it didn't take very long for me to realize why he's been here so long. Um, He is a faithful uh, servant leader um, and has done incredible work here, not only at St. Luke's, but in this uh, Hilton Head, Beaufort County uh, region. And I'm privileged and honored to, that he would allow me the opportunity to speak to his people this morning um, about a topic and a subject matter that is very near and dear to my heart. Um, obviously, as he mentioned about Mother Emmanuel, um, I had a small role to play in this event, but it certainly uh, took me by surprise uh, and it shaped forever. Um, my view of what it means to forgive, and that's what I'm here to talk about this morning, forgiveness. 
And when we talk about forgiveness, you know, we, we, those of us who follow Jesus' teaching, those of you who are Bible readers, you realize when you read through the Gospels and you read through Jesus' earthly ministry, we understand very quickly that Jesus makes forgiveness a central theme throughout his mission. Amen? Amen. Now, the one other thing I want to tell you that given my Baptist upbringing, if y'all say amen a lot, I will preach a lot faster, okay? So we'll get out of here real quick. I ran over a little bit in the earlier service, so I said I'm going to get through a lot quicker, respectful of your time. So the amens are encouraged, y'all. Amen. Jesus masterfully takes us through the teachings, and, he, and especially when he talks about forgiveness, he makes us to understand that it's not conditional. It's not a question of who are we are supposed to forgive. Can we forgive this one or that one? Or can we forgive this sin or that sin? Jesus said, forgive as you have been forgiven. And Jesus demonstrates that so beautifully as he took his earthly role, uh, left the comforts of heaven to come to earth, only to suffer and die on a cross for our sins and acquit us of the fact that we were all condemned and marked guilty. And so for those of us who, who accept Christ and believe him as our Lord and Savior, we are acquitted or forgiven of our sins. That's a beautiful thing. And he teaches that throughout Especially, and as we've read it into the gospel this morning, when he gives us the Lord's Prayer. And he says, right in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then he puts an exclamation point on that when he follows up and says in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. So Jesus is telling us basically, look, if you want to follow me, if you want to uh, follow after me, you have to expect that you're going to be offended. And you're going to offend some people. But if you want forgiveness, you have to give it. What makes forgiveness so important is for those of us to understand that we were once forgiven by the blood shed by Jesus Christ our Lord. C.S. Lewis, great writer, has this to say about forgiveness. He says, to be Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And we know all of us have been wronged. Uh, No matter who you are, if you live this life, you're going to offend someone and you're going to be offended. And so we're going to expect that someone is going to want to forgive us. But we also have to remember we have to be the forgiver. Paul, of all people, the Apostle Paul knew this very well. Paul, who once uh, did all that he could to persecute the church, after his conversion, and when he transformed his life over and gave it to Christ, he realized that we can't rely on our old self. When we come to Christ, when we have a radical transformation, and we accept Christ, We have to take or strip off the things that hold us back. 
You know, we're, we, we have to lose that old creature that we once were, and now we are a new creature in Christ. Amen? Amen. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. And this is the New Living Translation. He says, make allowances for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. So what Paul was saying was that, listen, you've got you to shed that old self. If you really want to follow Jesus, this is what's required. You have to strip off that old self. You have to become something new, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you have to forgive as you have been forgiven. I like when the NIV version says, bear with one another. Amen? Amen. How many people are bearing with people? Some of them are even in our own families. Amen? Amen. He says, bear with one another. In other words, be patient. Extend grace. Bear with them, with their faults, with their flaws. And then forgive them because you've been forgiven. Forgiveness is a powerful tool, and I saw that displayed firsthand. And for any of you who followed what the chain of events that occurred with the Mother Emanuel Church shooting, you realize that the impact that the family of the victims had with respect to forgiveness. I know that it it had an amazing impact on me, and little did I know that before uh, the family would speak out at the bail hearing um, that I would be inserted into this horrific event through my job as an FBI agent. Most of my career I spent 15 and a half years in Newark, New Jersey. I was assigned to the Newark field office. Any New Jerseyans here today? Anybody wants to admit they're from New Jersey? Okay, I've got one hand in the back. We'll talk later about what exit you're from. Okay. Fifteen and a half years in Newark, New Jersey is nothing like Hilton Head. Amen. Amen. In 2011, I was transferred my family to work in the Bluffton RA, we call it. It's a small office in Bluffton. And I was assigned to work uh, the Beaufort County region, Hampton, Jasper County. But I reported to the, our Charleston office. I was under the Charleston supervision. And so um, I remember that night very vividly, June the 17th, 2015. And I remember it well because it was a Wednesday night, and I was teaching Bible study at my church, Live Oak Christian Church in Bluffton. And I was teaching a men's discipleship Bible study. I got done with the Bible study and came home. Um, As my wife and I, our routine is, we decided that we were going to have our devotional with our two children and have prayer with them and tuck them to bed. Immediately after I did that, my phone rang, my work phone, which was odd, and I saw it was my supervisor from Charleston. I said, usually if he calls me at this late hour, nothing good has happened. And so I answered the phone, and it was my supervisor, Brian, and he called and he said, George, listen, I... Something terrible has happened. There's been a shooting at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston. And I said, wow, on a Wednesday night, Brian, that's, that's odd. And he said, yeah. Um, I said, well, did anyone get hurt? He said, well, um, there were several members of the church who were there. Uh, Reverend Pinckney, who's also state senator, was present. And um, he was shot. Several people were shot. 
and it doesn't look good. I said, okay, well, do you want me to come up right now, leave? I mean, I'm two hours away from Charleston. I can leave Bluffton, and I can get there. He said, no, 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 George, I have all the Charleston agents out on the scene, on the crime scene. It's an active shooter situation. The shooter has not been identified. He's still at large. What I'm going to need you to do is just come up at around 6 a.m. to relieve the guys and gals who have been working from now until 6 a.m. in the morning. You'll be their relief. I said, okay, I can do that. I said, but, you know, two hours to get to Charleston by 6, I have to leave at 4. So I started packing right away. I told my wife, I said, honey, there's, something's happened, and I'm going to have to leave, and I don't know when I'm going to be home. And so uh, my wife was used to that. She knew it was part of my job. And so I packed my ready bag, and I got my gear together, and I tried to get a couple hours sleep, 4 a.m., wheels up, I head to Charleston. Now, when I get to Charleston, I don't go to Emmanuel to the crime scene because that was already being taken care of by our crime scene investigators. They told me to go to the command post, which was a couple of blocks away. I get to the command post, report for duty. At this time, the suspect is still at large, and we have not identified him yet. What I did learn at that time is that nine of the members of that Bible study Reverend Clemente Pinckney, Cynthia Hurd, DePayne Middleton Doctor, Sharonda Coleman Singleton, Susie Jackson, Myra Thompson, Tawanza Sanders, Ethel Lance, and the Reverend Daniel Simmons were brutally shot and killed. There were no survivors. Well, that's not true. There were survivors. Let me just clarify that. There were originally 14 people in that Bible study. And there were three survivors, and actually five survivors, and I'll explain. Um, At the Bible study in the basement, if you look at Mother Emanuel Church, if they can put the church up on the screen, um, if you look to the left of the church, there was an entrance. Most folks did not enter through the Calhoun Street entrance. They went around to the side, and you went down into the basement of the church for the Bible study, and that's where they set it up in a rectangular set of tables. And then you can go upstairs into the sanctuary. When uh, Mr., as we now learn, Mr. Roof arrived, he went through that side entrance. And it was a little after 8 o'clock that he arrived there, and when he walked down into the basement, he was welcomed by Pastor Pinckney and members of the Bible study. And then he sat down next to them, and they continued on with the Bible study, and they prayed with him. Now, what was interesting is, and we learned this later through our interview with Mr. Roof, is that he said that at one point during the Bible study, he started to reconsider. He started to change his mind about what he was attempting to do. And the reason why he did that was because the people were so kind to him, they embraced him in brotherly and sisterly Christian love, that he almost, for a moment, decided he would not go through with it. But unfortunately, after the study was over and the members were ready to pray with him and for him, as the members put their heads down to pray, Mr. Roof pulled out a a forty-five caliber Glock handgun and he began shooting. And he shot approximately well over 70 rounds in that basement. 
killing nine of those members of the Bible study. Now, there were three survivors. Felicia Sanders, whose son, Tawanza Sanders, was one of those who was mortally wounded, and who her aunt was also wounded in, in, and murdered, rather. Um, her 11-year-old granddaughter, she shielded her and, and hid under the table. They survived. Polly Shepard survived, and when Mr. Roof went around to her and asked her, did I shoot you? She responded, no, and he says, okay, good, because I want you to tell the story, tell my story. See, Dylan Roof was a troubled young man. He came from a dysfunctional family, and after the Trayvon Martin incident in Florida and after the Ferguson incident in, uh, near St. Louis and the Freddie Gray incident in Baltimore, through all the demonstrations and the conflict that ensued afterwards, Dylan Roof became a very radicalized white supremacist. And in his distorted thinking, he thought that, that black people were going to take over the world and it threatened the white race. So he chose Mother Emanuel Church. We found out later that he actually did surveillance of several black churches in, in the Charleston area. But he selected Mother Emanuel because of the historical significance of it. He wanted to get the most maximum response by causing a race riot by assassinating these members of the church. Now, one of the things that we found out later, too, that we didn't know is that Reverend Pinckney's wife, Jennifer, was actually, and one of his daughters, was actually in Reverend Pinckney's study when the shooting occurred. And they hid in that office, and they survived. So there were actually five survivors of the church shooting that night. Um, one of the things that, and how I got impacted and brought into this story, when we were in the command post, and when Mr. Roof was, we still didn't know who he was, uh, we started trying to get as much information to the public as we could to help identify him. And fortunately for us, Emmanuel Church at that side entrance had a camera. And in that camera, we were able to capture a video of Mr. Roof leaving his vehicle and going into that side door. And we were also able to see after the shooting, the post-shooting, movements of Mr. Roof coming out of Mother Emanuel. So we, we knew by that time when he entered and when he exited. However, we didn't know who he was. So we sent out photos, still photos, to the public and our, our tip hotline to see if someone could identify him. Fortunately, by about 9 a.m. that next morning, as I'm in the command post, we had a call come in from, believe it or not, someone who was a relative of Mr. Roof and identified him said, that's I know who that is. That's Dylan Root. So we knew who he was. We knew who our suspect was. The problem was we couldn't locate him, and we were worried that he was going to go out and start shooting other people at other churches all over. And so uh, we sent information out to the tip line to see if anyone could track him down. We knew the make and model of his vehicle. Uh, we started 
getting interviews of family members and friends to try to get as much intelligence as we could about Mr. Roof and where he might be going. Our first break was around 11 a.m. There was a woman who was driving in Shelby, North Carolina, her vehicle, and she actually saw the picture of Mr. Roof and his vehicle, and she called into our command post and said, I think I've spotted him, or actually she called the Shelby Police Department, and she said, I think I found or spotted the suspect. And sure enough, it was him. He was in driving in Shelby, North Carolina. So the Shelby police conducted a vehicle road stop. They arrested Mr. Roof without incident, put him into custody, took him back to the Shelby Police Department. And this is where I come in. So I'm in the command post, and I'm running leads down, and I'm trying to help you know, figure out, well, now we know we've, we've found him, we know where he is. And my supervisor, the same guy called me, Brian, comes up to me and says, George, do me a favor. I want you to go with one of the other agents from the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, SLED, SLED agent, and two Charleston police officers, and I want you to go to Shelby, and I want you to get a confession out of Dylan Roof. So I looked at my supervisor, and I said, wait a second. You know, I'm not ever going to be insubordinate and challenge your order. But one thing I learned in the FBI is, and any time we try to get someone to cooperate, we want to make sure that we send someone who would be the most effective individual in obtaining a confession. So I said, Brian, look at me. I said, he just shot about, he shot and killed nine people in a church last night looked just like me. You, you think he really wants to talk to me? Do you think I'm going to be effective in building rapport enough with him that he's going to confess anything to me? And so Brian said to me, he goes, George, he goes, look, you're my most senior agent. And you're the guy. You're the one that I want him to see. So I went. I thought he was crazy, but I went. And I went with the, the other uh, three, three officers. And um, Governor Haley was nice enough to provide a plane for us to fly to Shelby. So we get on a plane. We fly to Shelby, North Carolina. I get to Shelby probably about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, during that time, unbeknownst to me, Two of our, my other colleagues from our Columbia office drove to Shelby. One of them was our uh, vic- uh, violent crime supervisor, Mike Stansberry, and he drove to Shelby, got there before I did, and so he was given the green light to go ahead and conduct the interview with Mr. Roof. And so by the time I, I landed with the other officers, um, Agent Stansberry was already interviewing Mr. Roof, and so now my job had changed from being the interviewer, interrogator, to now my role was to take Mr. Roof and his inter- videotaped interview confession and bring it back to Charleston. Okay? So you'll see there's a picture of me on the left there with the black shirt on, um, escorting Dylan Roof onto the plane. So we get Mr. Roof onto the plane. It's a five-seater King Air airplane. If you've ever been on one of those, it's frightening. It's small. And so I asked him, I said, position Mr. Roof right in the front seat, 
and I will sit directly across from him, and the other officers sit be, sat behind us. And so as I'm sitting there with Mr. Roof, and his knees are literally touching my knees, and I'm looking at him directly in the face, and he's really not feeling me too much, so he's looking out the window. I don't think he wanted to engage me. But I think he was also very tired. And so um, I had a roller coaster of emotions. I'll be honest with you. One of the things uh, I've, I've always practiced in my career as an FBI agent is I never, ever want to let my personal feelings interfere with my ability to do my job. I have to be professional at all times. I have to treat people with dignity and respect at all times. That is what is required of me. But I couldn't help because of the human condition, the horrific act that had just occurred. It, it, it was difficult for me to look at him and not be angry. And so I was angry. And then I looked at him, and I also, I also felt sorry for him. I said, how could, I mean, who failed you? Who was it in life that failed you to get you to the point that you could have this much hate in your life? That you would brutally attack people of God in the house of God while they had their heads down praying for you? How could this happen? Who could have failed you? And then the minute I felt compassion and sorry for him, I, then I got angry at myself for feeling compassionate and sorry for him, if you know what I mean. So I had this roller coaster of emotions going through my head. But then I said, you know what? I've got to treat him just like any other person in my care and custody. And I have, I've had hundreds of people over the course of my career that I have arrested and had them in my care and custody. And my primary job is to make sure that I get them where they need to be, safely secured, so that justice and due process could be served. And so as I'm sitting there, and now I'm trying to regain my composure and professionalism, and I as I would always do anyone in my custody, I would say, are you hungry? Did you eat anything, Mr. Roof? And he was very tired because after the shooting, he had driven around all through South Carolina, North Carolina, all night until he was captured. And then he was interviewed and interrogated for hours, so he was tired. And I said, did you have anything to eat? He said, well, the Shelby police gave me some food about maybe six hours ago. I said, okay, well, I'll make sure that when we land in Charleston, I'll tell the marshals and the sheriff deputies that you haven't eaten in a while, and we'll make sure you get some food. And then I asked him whether or not he had any need for prescription medication because I don't want him to have a reaction if he was on medication. If he needed anything, I should be aware of that I can notify someone when we land that we can get a medical treatment. He said, no, I'm not taking any medication. So the only thing that we had, we had a water. It was a very hot June day, and it was hot in the airplane. The pilots had given us a cooler with some water in it. And so I reached down, and I said, well, Mr. Roof, I do have a bottle of water. Would you like some water? And he said, yes, that would be good. So I grabbed the water out of the cooler, and if you notice, when we were escorting Mr. Roof, he's in a black-and-white prison jumpsuit, He's in leg irons, put leg irons so he can't run. And we put a belly band around him, we call it, and it's a leather belt and it has a metal hook that we then, uh-oh, I don't want to step off of there. <laughs> There's a metal hook on the belly band that 
your handcuffs go through when you handcuff your prisoner so that he has very limited mobility with his hands because your hands can hurt you. Your hands can kill you. These were the same hands that pulled the trigger 70-some times the night before. And so I got the water, and I'll tell you what, church, this is when I believe God spoke in a very, very, the Holy Spirit spoke to me in a very profound way. As angry as I was, as upset as I was, of the unthinkable that had happened, the Spirit of God spoke very, very vividly to me and said, George, just remember something. You may be the only Jesus he sees. And even a killer like Dylan Roof can be redeemed. You serve him that water. And so I took the water and I opened the lid up. And I, I reached over to him. And he, he could barely get his hands up. And I, and I said, I'll take care of it. And I poured that water into Dylan Roof's mouth. And when he was done, I put the cap back on. I said, if you need any more water, just let me know and I'll take care of it for you. I remember when we got back after we returned from Charl- to Charleston and I escorted Mr. Roof off the plane and I turned him over to the sheriff deputies in Charleston. The slight agent who was with me, his name is Joe, he came up to me afterwards and he said, George, how'd you do it? I said, what are you talking about? How did you serve him the water? I said, Joe, it wasn't me that served him the water. It was God. The Holy Spirit moved me to serve him because even he can be redeemed. And I don't tell that story to try to get a pat on the back because I don't think it was anything that I, so great that I did. I served someone water. But it's the point of the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the same spirit that rests and rules and abides in every one of us. And I pray that we all would be obedient to the Holy Spirit's calling when it comes for us to have the capacity to forgive. And we learned what forgiveness was to the victim families. I heard amazing stories from the victim families. I spent time with them during the trial. I attended the trial, both trials. There was the regular criminal trial and the death penalty phase of the trial, and through that time I spent with the family members of the victims, their capacity to forgive was overwhelming, was incredible. At the bail hearing a couple days after Dylan Roof was captured, family members were given the opportunity by the magistrate to go before Mr. Roof and have comments. Listen to what Nadine Collier, who was the daughter of Ethel Lance, said at the bail hearing. With her voice breaking with emotion, she said, she said this. You took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never, ever hold her again. But I forgive you. And have mercy on your soul. Atlanta Simmons, granddaughter of the Reverend Daniel Simmons, got up and also told Ruth during the bond hearing, that my grandfather lived love and preached love so that hate won't win. 
Hate Won't Win became a movement, a national movement, based on the comments of a young lady named Alana Simmons. And so, friends, I'm encouraged by the family members. I'm encouraged by their capacity to live out the truths of what Jesus told us is, told us to, which is that we forgive because we've been forgiven. Three points I want to leave with you, and my time is up. As far as forgiveness goes, things to consider about being forgiving. Number one, forgiveness starts with trusting God. If we trust God, if we trust that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, that Jesus is the righteous judge, then we can increase our bandwidth to forgive knowing that Jesus is the ultimate authority and judge, not us. We are just called to forgive. Amen? Amen. Second point, God's grace reminds us to forgive. All of us who have accepted Jesus Christ into our hearts as our Lord and personal Savior have been saved by his amazing grace. And it's grace that we have to extend to those who offend us. God's grace reminds us that we've been forgiven, that we have to forgive. And lastly, forgiveness brings honor to God. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. He said, In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Our willingness to forgive others identifies us as children of God. It lets the whole world know who we are and whose we are in him. And it's by our ability to forgive that honors God because we may be the only Jesus that people see. And so I don't know about you. I don't know. Maybe there are some folks here. I know forgiveness is a difficult thing because a lot of us have been hurt. A lot of us have had pain and betrayal and folks who have hurt us in the past. But I want us to think about the victim families of Mother Emmanuel. Think about what they went through, the unspeakable, the inexcusable, but their willingness to forgive. And if there is someone here under the sound of my voice who has struggled with forgiveness, someone who's wronged them in the past, I would encourage you, pick up the phone, call them, forgive them as you would be forgiven. And I will say this at the very end. There were great words at the end of the trailer, which I don't know if you heard, but I thought were so, so profound. When the gentleman said this about forgiving, he said, the act of forgiving people is the greatest act of love that one could ever experience. Forgive as you have been forgiven. And remember, Hate won't win. God bless you.